0: Well, good morning. It is good to be here. My name is Matt Perez. I am one of the pastors and one of the elders here at Life Church. It's a privilege to be bringing the Word of God this morning. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. So whether you are in the room or you are online, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible, your phone, your tablet, whatever it is that you need. I'll be in the ESV. Whatever version you have, we want to encourage you to follow along. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 this morning. So last weekend, there was a college in the Carolina system that found itself in the middle of a controversy, not of their doing. Over the weekend, several students who attended the university uh, posted on social media videos that contained imitations of the students uh, grossly imitating minorities, using racial slurs, and grossly using inappropriate sexual comments towards women of minority groups. Before the weekend was up, students, alumni, and parents were quite disturbed and calling for the removal of the students from the university. There was a call for the school to not condone or accept or support the behavior that was both overtly sexist and overtly racist. After viewing the videos myself and reading the school's initial response and the response of those who were calling the school to action, I was deeply saddened by what I saw. It was sad to see that those in the video thought that their actions or comments were at some level either funny or witty or even deemed appropriate to say and do. The behavior is in no way acceptable, in no way should be tolerated, but What really grieved me in it was this. Somewhere, somehow, from someone, these students felt that what they said and did was not only okay, but perfectly appropriate to post for the world to see. That somehow, somewhere, someone shared with these students at the foundation of their life that this was somehow appropriate to say about people from a different ethnic group or people of a different sex. Those students should and have been held accountable for their actions and removed from the university. I was sad for them. I was sad for them. Because at the foundation, their life is being built to say that somehow you think what you did was okay and appropriate. Before we jump in the text this morning, I want us to think about a question. Now our text this morning is really geared toward younger people. So if you're in the room or online and you find yourself in the stage of life where you are younger, you are a early 20s, a college, a high school, a middle school student, even a grade school student, you're here with your parents. The challenge this morning is really to ask yourself, how do you view the world around you? What is the, how do you make decisions? What is the operating system by which you think about life and think this is or is not appropriate to do? Really young people in the room, the challenge is to ask yourself, what guides the choices that you make and the actions that follow? Now if I don't find myself in that demographic, don't check out on me because this text is very applicable to you too. I'm in a stage as a a middle-aged adult with children uh, who are in the later stages of the teenage life, and so for people who find themselves in my stage of life, whether you are married with children or you are single, I still want to ask you the same question. What's the foundations with which you're building your life, because it's not too late to rethink the structures of the operating systems that you use to make choices and to help guide you in the decisions that you make and the actions that follow. In addition to that, whether you are a parent or an aunt or an uncle, I want to challenge you to think about how you could be praying for, guiding or shaping the young hearts or minds that God has put in your world. In addition to this, maybe you find yourself at the later stages of life, and the text will address you as well. Maybe you find yourself, you, you've slowed down, you've got a little snow on the roof, if there's even any roof to be had, right? And, and you're thinking, man, this isn't for me. Hey, this preacher is looking back at his life where maybe he didn't have the most solid foundation, but he's looking back at the choices he made and looking forward, knowing there's still days to be had. So maybe you find yourself in this room or online at the later stages of life, and you think, well, you know, I, I, I am who I am. No, God is still shaping and crafting and molding us until he calls us home. So I want to challenge you to be thinking about the operating system by which you view life, how you make decisions, how you process how you should act. In addition to that, let me challenge you in how you could be praying for, trying to encourage your children who are raising your grandchildren, as well as your grandchildren. With that said, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 starting in verse 7. Now last week, if you were with us, we saw the first six verses uh, brought to us by Blaine Boyd, our missionary to the Middle East. And as he went through the first six verses of Ecclesiastes, we saw that as we've noticed, as Pastor James talked about earlier, like like 2020 is a world of uncertainty. So to preach this year that, hey, we live in a world of uncertainty is like that's low-hanging fruit this year, right? But, But we saw in the text last week that we live in this world of uncertainty where it seems like it's just this random events that happen and and the preacher says they're not so random. In fact, God is sovereignly in control of all of it. He is not for a moment off the throne. Since this is the case, we need to get busy working, doing the things of God, knowing that God is at work doing the things of God. Now, we live in a world of uncertainty where God is on the throne, and as the preacher continues, he's getting ready to land the plane, so to speak. The book is coming to an end. In that world of uncertainty where God is on the throne, how do we navigate a world of wisdom? How do we think about this life? And and here is on the screen behind me what we want to think about today. Wisdom is found in a life that is built on a foundation that remembers who God is and how he has revealed himself through Christ. That while this world may feel uncertain, God is in control, and because He is in control, we need to build our life on a foundation of remembering who God is and how He has revealed Himself through Christ. Join with me in the reading of Scripture this morning, starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and going through verse uh, verse 7 and going through chapter 12, verse 8. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, the dust returns to the earth as it was, And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Reading of the word of the Lord this morning. As we look to set our foundations in God, there are two commands in this text that I want us to be looking at this morning. There is a call to rejoice in the Lord and a call to remember our Creator. I want to look at the first one here in the end of chapter 11 too. The call to enjoy life, knowing that you will stand before God. Look at verse 7. He says, Light is sweet and is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. He is saying that, that life is uncertain in the first six verses we saw last week, but God is on the throne, so enjoy your life on this earth. Enjoy the time that you see the sun. He's saying, enjoy the time that God has given you. Rejoice in the years you live. Enjoy them he says in verse 8 he says but remember darkness is coming the end of your time on earth is coming the sun will set on all of us and he says it's all vanity it means it's all vapor like you are here today and gone tomorrow you will blink and your life will pass you by it will come quickly and I think this is good for us to think about, especially to our young people in the room, because when you're young, it seems like life is going to go on forever, right? There's just this endless account of days that you feel that you have. You're really not thinking about your mortality um, until maybe a grandparent passes or a parent is taken home early. But, but for the most part, if you're young, you think like your days are going to go on forever. And you give little thought to that fact that they will come to an end. But wisdom, we are told, he says, Wisdom is recognizing at a young age that your days on this earth are not endless. This past week, I was talking with some friends who were talking about their aging parents and grandparents. And it was sweet to hear them talk fondly of their of their loved ones who are aging. They were talking about the things that their parents or grandparents used to be able to do, and they, they talked with great affection about the the things they did in life, and the jobs that they had. And then they lamented that in their older age, they've watched them slowing down. They've watched time rob their parents or grandparents of physical abilities that they once had. They even lamented how they have watched loved ones, aging grandparents, being robbed of even the mental abilities that they once had. And as we talked and and, and I listened to them finally speaking of their loved ones, I said, you want to know what the scary thing about our conversation right now is? I said, before we know it, it's going to be our children and our grandchildren sitting around a table saying these things about us. It'll be here before we know it. The end will come quicker than we think and the call is to rejoice in all of your days. And I think that's important. I I had a great sister in the Lord this week point that out to me. She said, "You know, remember, it's rejoice in all of your days because when you're older, you tend to think back to the younger days as if those were the glory days and the only good days. Yet we're reminded that each stage of life is a gift from God that brings with it different aspects of joy and challenges. The ironic thing is, on the flip side, if you're in this room when you're younger, most likely you're looking forward to the days when you're older and get to do the things that you can't do right now, and you can't wait for those things, as if like the time that I'm at right now is not enjoyable, or it's good, but it gets to be better when I get to here. And the a preacher says, guys, girls, remember, even the days that God has you at right now, these stages, each stage is unique, and there's beauty, and there's joy in them. Enjoy them, the stage that you're at. And if God gives you many days under the sun, enjoy them. If you're at the end of your days, if the sun looks like it's setting, maybe you're looking back and saying, man, I, I, haven't, I haven't really done that. I haven't really enjoyed, especially in God, the days that he has given me. What do I do? Well, you can't unring the bell. But remember, the preacher is somebody who's older in age, looking back at choices that he made that he wished he didn't, but also looking forward, because the sun hasn't set yet. and God still has gifted the preacher some days. and God has still gifted you days to look forward and, and course correct while you're still here, to find joy in them. In verse 9, we f- see the first command that is given in the section, Rejoice! Rejoice! in your life, in your youth. But know that you will one day, Scripture says in verse 9, rejoice knowing one day you will stand before God in judgment. Walk knowing that your walk is, as R.C. Sproul would say, Deo." C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O. Karumdeo, it's this concept that Sproul says is the key to the Christian life. He says it's understanding that I live karumdeo. Deo. It means I live all of my life, every stage of it, both publicly and privately, openly before God, under the authority of God, in the presence of God, and Sproul says because of that should be lived to the glory of God. In verse 10, the, the preacher says, remove anger and what pains you, what makes you anxious, and, and walk openly before God. And, and so you, you're, you're reading in chapter 11, and you're coming to the end of chapter 11, and it almost feels like the preacher's saying, look, life is short, enjoy life on this earth. And at first glance, it feels like he's saying, man, just, just enjoy life. Enjoy what we would maybe call hedonism, right? Like, like, get as much pleasure as you can, however you can, whatever it feels good to you, do it. Like, like maximize to the fullest capacity your joy because your days are short. It almost feels like the preacher's leaning that way, but, but he, he pumps the brakes on that mindset and says, hold on, no, 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 no. Enjoy your life under the sun knowing, he says in verse nine, that you will give an account To God. This guy is not calling us to pursue joy at every means possible. Think about if you have been walking through Ecclesiastes, think about the preacher here. He has been seeking wisdom and joy anywhere he can find it. He said, I looked for it in wealth, I looked for it in work, I looked for it in women, I looked for it in wine and it all came up empty. I recognize I live, as we talked about and prayed about earlier, in a broken world. I live in a world with a broken justice system, he says here in Ecclesiastes. This man has denied himself nothing, no avenue of seeking pleasure or fulfillment, and in the end, he says it was empty. He says, enjoy your youth. But think beyond the moment. Because you'll stand before God for your life under the sun. And so his call is not to a life of hedonism, of seeking joy at every means possible. He's actually calling us to what John Piper would call Christian hedonism. It's a a term Piper coined that I am recklessly pursuing the things of God. I am striving recklessly to find joy In the things that honor God and bring Him joy. This is what my aim is. I know I'll stand before Him, and I'm going to seek my joy and maximize my joy, in what brings Him joy is what Piper would say. One of his famous quotes that comes out of this concept of Christian hedonism is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, that He is glorified when we are satisfied and find our joy in Him. Okay, so what does this look like? I've been married 21 years to my wife that I've met in high school, and we are now at this stage where, like, our kids are older than when we met, which kind of weirds me out thinking, like, you shouldn't be meeting your spouse right now to my kids, right? But my wife and I have been married 21 years, and, and we were just last night talking about what a, what a blessing it's been to be married. I mean, I, I, I just, I could go on and on for a long time, right? So I, I love my wife, Beth, deeply, and and, and let's say that, that I come home one day, and I say to my wife, Beth, like, I love you. And what would really bring me joy tonight is for us to get dressed up. And I'd love to drive you to Charlotte. We'll bring our masks to be, you know, appropriate. And, and I'm going to drive you to Charlotte, and I'm going to take you to dinner in uptown, a couple of restaurants that we like, and, and we're going to just spend the day. It would bring me so much joy to take you to dinner and, and spend the evening with you. Now, if I said that to my wife, I guarantee you she will not say, you're the most selfish man I ever met. I can't believe that all you care about is your joy and your happiness. That's disgusting. I'm not going to dinner with you. No, my wife wouldn't say that. What she would say is, yes. And she would be honored and she would be joyful that I'm finding joy in bringing her joy. It's the same with God we find joy in the things that he enjoys, we find joy in honoring him, he doesn't look at us and go, man, you're being selfish. He's finding joy in you finding pleasure and joy in him. He's finding joy in you making him his treasure. If you talk to people on staff and say, what what is Matt like? They're probably going to say, at some point if you talk to him, just be careful, He's going to bring up food. He's going to talk about food. It's his love language. Just caveat emptor, buyer beware. You want to talk to him, food's coming up. I love food. As I said before, this body does not, was not built on salad. I love food, all right? But it goes deeper than a love for food. Growing up, I was the third of four boys. We cooked and baked with my mom. My joke is my mom taught us to cook and bake so we could be marketable and she can get us out of the house. Right, and, and it worked. Okay, But, but, but I, I love cooking, I love baking. And, and a couple of years ago, um, I found myself in this really just painful time of ministry. I mean, it was just a tough season. Mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, I was just running on fumes in my gas tank. I was just really done. Everything at my church was an uphill battle. It felt like it was just battle after battle. It seemed like every time we made progress and, and people growing, it was like six steps backwards. So it was just this exhausting time of ministry. And I knew how to cook, but for some reason I decided to dive in to cook more. And I found joy in it. And I guarantee you, my wife did not call me selfish at that moment. My wife was not like, you're cooking more because you like it. Stop doing that. Said no wife ever, right? Okay. So I am starting to cook more. And what I noticed was this. It became very therapeutic for me. I began to set aside and check out of some things in ministry that were plaguing me so I could be more fully in the moment of trying to learn new recipes and new dishes. And and, and I would begin to do those. And what I found was like my, my frustrations were pushing to the backside. And to the forefront of my mind was this like I can't wait for my family to come home and try this. I can't wait to try this new dish. I was enjoying taking my mind off of the struggles of ministry, and I was finding joy in cooking, and finding joy in the different authentic dishes that God has blessed us with throughout the world, right? Trying different dishes from different cultures, and I really found that as through cooking, the frustrations of my life and ministry were coming to the back and coming to the forefront was my love and appreciation and joy for the things that God gave me. In the foods that he gave me, in the people that he gave me. And, and, and so when I talk about cooking, I talk about it because through cooking, it really helped me just find joy in the Lord at a level I wasn't during a very difficult season of life. It brought me personal joy. It brought me greater spiritual joy. It, it brought me in a weird way closer to God and enjoyed the things that he provided here on this earth. I made much of him, found joy in him, and delighted him through the avenue of cooking. The preacher says to enjoy life, to live openly before God, from every aspect of the grand things to the mundane things. He says, enjoy life, but you will give an account. Enjoy life under the sun in God, but you will stand in judgment. The rest of the Bible bears out this reality, right? In Hebrews 9, 27, and 28, the author says that you you are appointed for man to die, to live and to die once, and then to face judgment. Because of this, Christ bore our sins. If you read the book of Romans in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Paul says that the gospel has the power to bring salvation to all who believe, that we are made righteous right with God we are justified by faith and we need to be made right with God because all those who are not right with God all those who are unrighteous will face his wrath and Paul then through the rest of the letter of Romans goes on to show how all of us are unrighteous all of us fall short of God but God provides a righteousness in and through Christ and we can have a right relationship with him and be spared from his wrath and his judgment. The author of Hebrews, Paul in Romans, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, all throughout Scripture, you see this common theme, you will live, you will die, you will stand before God, and as Scripture bears out, life that is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, is a life that can stand before him. So the author says, enjoy life, but know you will stand openly before God. And because of this, he gives us our second command at the beginning of Romans, or at the beginning of Ecclesiastes twelve, to remember our Creator as we set the foundation for life. Look at the first six verses of Ecclesiastes chapter twelve. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors in the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets." 11 chapters, the preacher has been seeking wisdom. He's been trying to find where to find joy in rest and satisfaction in life on this earth. And as the book comes to the end, as he begins to come to his conclusion, he, he comes to the aha moment, right? He says, listen, as you seek wisdom and meaning in life, in a life that can feel meaningless, in a world that is broken, in a world that is but a vapor, you are here today and gone tomorrow. As you're seeking to live that life, wisdom is this, he says, in his grand conclusion here in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your Creator. And do this while you're young. Don't wait for life to pass you by for the sun to be setting, to then say, you know, I wonder what role God should be playing in my life. Don't wait until the sun is setting to begin to then be thinking about God and the role He should play. Remember your Creator, He says in chapter 12, verse 1, because the evil days are coming, your years will draw near, and your life will be coming to an end. Before the sun starts to set on your life, think about this, He says. And then he gives this poem-type illustration of a house and a body that is breaking down. He says, think about God before your body begins to break down, before your legs begin to break down. He says, before your grinders are few, before you begin to lose your teeth or have very little if any, left, before the windows are dim, before your eyes begin to fade and you can't see very far in front of you, before the... Doors are shut. He's saying before you get to that age where you have trouble hearing, he says, when the sound of grinding is low, like like I used to go about the hustle and bustle of life, I was involved in, in the busyness of life, and it was go, 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 and that seems like a, like a distant memory now. I can't keep up with this ever-changing world, and I've just slowed down. He says, don't wait until then to think about God. He says, don't wait until you are at a stage where the bird is waking you, where like you just wake up at a moment's notice because you can't sleep or because... You got to go to the bathroom yet again, right? He says, "Don't wait to those days to start thinking about God." He says, "Don't wait until the song is brought low; your voice is fading. It's not as strong as it used to be." He says, "Don't wait until the almond tree blossoms." When the almond tree blossomed, it was this, it's this beautiful white, and he's given this picture of this white, old-aged hair. He says, "Don't wait until." He says, "Don't wait until you you." Fear high places because your balance is just not what it used to be and you may fall. He says, don't wait until you used to be the spry grasshopper and now you're just dragging yourself along because you have just flown and broken down. He says, don't wait until the things that once brought you pleasure can no longer bring you pleasure and joy. He says, don't wait until then to then think, I wonder what role God should play in my life. He says, while you're young, you should be asking this question. He says, don't wait until life has passed you by to begin to think, I wonder what I should be doing with God in my life. Remember your Creator, chapter 12, verse 1. Before, verse 6, the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God, who... Gave it vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. He describes a lampstand hanging from a beautiful silver cord, and the cord breaks, and the bowl drops, and it shatters. He, she gives a picture of a water pitcher that is broken and can no longer draw water. He says, "You will one day end. Before that comes, and it will come quickly." Verse eight. It's a vapor. Remember your creator. This call to remember your creator, to rejoice in life, it stems from a worldview. And when I use the term worldview, I don't mean like the way the world tells us to think. When I I say worldview, I am talking about the way that you personally think about, view life, and operate. I'm talking about your operating system. It's your worldview. This is how I see and process life, and because of that, this is how I act. Your worldview is like, think about like a pair of glasses, like, if I don't have good eyesight, I've got to put these glasses on so I can see properly, right? Your worldview is like the glasses that you put on so you can see life and operate in life. And there are many different worldviews that you can have to operate, but I'm just going to give you two to think about. Now, if you have a worldview, an operating system, if you view life through the foundation that there's no creator, you believe you came from cosmic chance, you believe you Climbed out of the primordial soup, so to speak. You came from nowhere. You're returning to nowhere. If this is what you believe, this is your operating system, the call to enjoy life will be very self-centered, right? Just enjoy however you want, whenever you want, the best way you can, because you've came from nothing, you're going to nothing. You're accountable to nobody. Maximize pleasure any way you can. Now, that's one worldview. There's another worldview you can have where you see yourself through the eyes of a created being. Remember your creator. If I view life through this lens, the way that I approach life and think about life looks different. I am created. I was created by somebody or something. More importantly, if I am created... Does that creator have any ownership over me? We live in a culture where creation and ownership are really separated, right? Like, like I didn't create my clothes. A bunch of people did, right? And and I only own them because I beat you to the clothes rack, and you're probably okay with that, right? Like, I don't need your clothes, right? So I own my clothes because I beat you to the clothes rack. I didn't create them. And and when I don't want them anymore, I, I'm gonna put them in a bag and give them to somebody or throw them away or put them in the salvation arm. Someone else will own them. The creator ownership is kind of lost in our culture. But imagine if we lived in a culture where that is not as separated, right? Imagine we're in a culture where where I walk out into the woods and I and I and I chop down a tree and 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 like a like a manly man I drag that tree back to my place and and I begin to like cut it up and shape it and craft it and you're watching me mold and shape and over time over a couple months you go from like what is that guy doing to like wow he made a canoe i don't know how to do that by the way and you're like wow it's a pretty sharp canoe that matt shaped and fashioned. and one day somebody walks up and you're like hey that's a pretty neat canoe whose canoe is that you'd be like that's matt perez's canoe i know it's matt perez's canoe because he owns it he shaped it he created it. i watched him Take it from a big tree to this beautiful piece of craftsmanship. That's Matt Prez's canoe. He made it. He owns it. Carry that concept over to creation. You were molded. You were shaped. You were created and crafted. The psalmist says knitted together in your mother's womb. If that's the case, then you're responsible to a creator. You have ownership over you. If I'm owned by somebody, creator, how I live under the sun is going to look much different than if I feel that I'm owned by nobody, if I'm the captain of my soul. I'm accountable to somebody, I answer to somebody. This is the worldview that the preacher arrives at to remember your creator. And it's not just, a, oh, yeah, I have a creator. These guys know they have a creator. But what he wants them to remember is you have a special, unique relationship to your creator. As the original readers or hearers are reading or hearing this, they know, I'm in covenant with that creator. I'm responsible to that creator. How I act bears witness to that creator. If you're in Christ, you have a responsibility to bear witness to that creator. You're owned by him. You're in relationship with him. When somebody says, oh, remember your creator, remember God, it's not like, oh yeah, I have a God. It's remember who he is, and remember your relationship with him through Christ, and that should impact how I operate. I played a lot of athletics growing up, and and I I say I'm from Chicago because it's just easier. I'm from the Chicagoland area. I grew up about a half hour outside of Chicago in northwest Indiana. Like my parents, you walk out their house, turn right, walk 100 yards, you're in Illinois. In about 25 minutes, 30 minutes, you're in downtown Chicago. So, So I grew up in the Chicagoland area, but northwest Indiana is is unique in Indiana. It's it's more diverse. It's a blue-collar area. Steel mills were there. And so the way that it was looked at by the rest of the state is a little bit different. We're from the region. We were that proud. But if you're really from the region, you're not from the region. You use the Southside Chicago accent. You're from the region. And if you're from the region, you're probably at some point been referred to as a region rat either affectionately or inaffectionately. I don't know where the term came from. I think it may have come from the legendary rats that were in the steel mills, and I've heard stories. They were large. But we were region rats, and when we walked out of the area to go play athletic events with people outside of the area, we knew how we were looked at by the rest of the state. And at some point before we would take the field, either at the hotel or, or at the ball field, our, our coach, it was like verbatim, like every time. He would say, listen. Remember that jersey that you're wearing. Remember what it represents. Remember where you're from. You represent yourself, you represent your teammates, you represent your parents, you represent your school, you represent your region, and we knew what we knew the speech was coming. But it was a remember who you are identified with and who you are accountable to and who you represent. We carried it well. When he says, remember your creator, he's saying, remember who you are affiliated with. Remember who you're connected to. Remember who you're representing. Carry it well. My relationship with God is one where he is my creator. He shaped and fashioned me. And I am in Christ, in covenant with him. And this should impact the way that I operate on this earth. I am in relationship with him through the finished work of Christ. And as a child of God, I'm called to live for him and in him for his glory. Remember your creator as you navigate life under the sun. If you have your Bibles, as we kind of close out, I'm going to encourage you to turn over to Matthew chapter 7. A few years ago, I was in my office at, at another church, and one of the elders came in, and he was just grieved and burdened. We had several families that we loved and cared about in our church, that we were trying to help grow like everyone else in our church. We were helping to see them grow in their love for God and their desire to walk in obedience to Him. And the families that he was just grieved over, each had junior high, senior high students who were, were very involved in athletics at their school. And, and I am not anti-athletics by any stretches, I just shared my illustration, right? Um, they played for their school teams, they played on travel teams, they would take private lessons, and it seemed like it was just one thing after another, and they were always to the next thing. It seemed like everything, including God, would take a back seat to whatever athletic thing was at the moment. And the elder was just lamenting, because it seemed like everything was taking a back seat to athletics, and God was not where he needed to be in their lives. And the elder was lamenting, and and he wasn't like, oh, sports are evil, because we both had kids in sports. So we weren't like, oh, sports is evil, it's bad. It was just like, I'm grieved. I remember him sitting down with me, and he was just grieved. And he said, these, these, these families are just consumed with athletics. And it's clear that they love God, but it, but it seems, over the course of a couple of years, that they love God, but they seem to love other things more than God. And their, their, their pocketbooks and their calendars seem to bear witness to, like, God's nice, but these athletics matter more. And he just simply said, I'll never forget this. When are they going to teach them the importance of God? And my answer didn't help him any. It only grieved him more. I looked at him and I simply said, they already are. You need to understand what they're teaching them is he's not that important. And it grieved him. Because what we were seeing playing out was God is important, God is good, but not as important as sports. As we watched their kids grow, what we saw unfold was, and God is not as important as, and the list just grew and grew and grew. We just watched in pain a slow drift from some of these families, from we love God to God's good, but these things are more important. We're talking about putting God at the foundation. How do I do that? Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus is finishing out his Sermon on the Mount, Mount, and he, he says this Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house in the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. He says, let me tell you just real quick, Jesus says, about two different homes, two different lives, two different foundations. They both get hit by life, and they both respond differently. Why is that, Jesus says? He says, because the house over here was built on a foundation where they, they heard the word of God, but they simply never put it into practice. And when life unfolded in this broken world, as the preacher would say in Ecclesiastes, they collapsed. They had no foundation. He says, There's a very different response than when the same thing happens to this house over here, this life over here, where life unfolds, just like anybody else, right? But he or she is hearing the Word of God. Putting it into practice. And when Life in this broken world unfolds. They're able to stand. If I'm going to challenge you to put God at the foundation... What does that look like? Let me give you three real quick, and they're going to be on the screen. Three real quick ways for you to put God at the foundation of your life. Here's number one. You've got to study the Word. Like, really, that's not a secret, right? Like, you, you need to place yourselves in environments where you can come under the authority of God, both in your public life and your private life. I'm not calling you to, like, six-hour devotions a day. But, but you have to think through your life. And what role the Word of God is playing to create that solid foundation? Jesus says, you got to hear it, right? you got to come under it. Here's the second step. It's not just who hears the Word, but they put it into practice. You have to apply it. I'm going to give you four quick questions, and if these go quick, like grab me after the service, or, or type into the U version on your Bible app, they'll be on there, right? Or, or type into lifechurchnc.com live and there'll be some study notes from the sermon, they'll be there as well. But, but four questions, like, like uh, when I'm studying the Word, I want to apply it. Like, what does that look like? And, and maybe you have great tools already, great. But let me just give you four that are, they're not the end-all, be-all, but these are four good questions to ask any time you open the Word of God. What is this passage teaching me about God? Question number one. What is this passage teaching me about God? Question two. What is this text calling me to do that I'm not doing right now? You have to ask that. I read the Word of God, and I go, what is God calling me to do? And and what am I I doing or not doing in relation to this scripture? Question number three. Well, what steps do I need to do to make those changes? I open the Word of God. I read it. He says, this is what he's calling me to. And I say, my life doesn't quite look like that. Well, the next question I have to ask myself is, well, what steps do I need to start taking so my life looks like that? Question number four, when am I going to do this? Because if I look at Scripture, says, I should love my neighbor. I'm like, yeah, I'm really not loving my neighbor well. I should love him more. How? When? Apply it. So I'm going to study God's word. I'm going to apply it. Here comes number three. Place yourself in accountability. We push life groups here not because, like, we want to push our programs, we push life groups here because we believe everybody should be in some type of one-on-one or small discipleship group, some kind of group where we're sharing life together. Where it's your life group, women's coffee break, which is coming up, men's group, echo, collide. Even our life kids, we, we, we segment them out into groups to get them used to being in group together. And whether it's at a life group setting or a one-on-one setting or, or a quarter three that are opening Scripture together, you need to put brothers and sisters in Christ into your life. So when you open up scripture and study it and you're asked, how am I doing this or not doing this? They can hold you accountable. They can love you and challenge you and encourage you. And you could do the same for them. That's how you build a foundation. When you come to the end and the sun is setting, you can look back and say, I rejoiced in the life that God has gave me. And I remembered my relationship with my creator. And I have come under the authority of scripture and let it transform and change me for his glory. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together and pray now that as we we look to go from the church gathered to the church scattered, Lord, that we would take the wisdom of the preacher and look to apply it to our lives. Lord, where are there areas that I'm not rejoicing in my life? Where are there areas where I'm not remembering the relationship I should be in with you? how that should be impacting my daily decisions. Lord, maybe I'm not even in a relationship with my Creator. I don't even know what that means. Lord, what, may you impress upon their hearts the desire to ask, what steps do I need to take to be in relationship with my Creator through Christ? Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of the preacher who reminds us life moves quick. And in the end, it'll be us alone standing before you. When we come to that, may we find joy, refuge, happiness, the finished work of Christ who allows us to stand clothed in his righteousness before you for your glory, for your honor. Pray this on your sons.